Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your amazing love that was demonstrated to us through the sacrifice of your son, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf so that by simple faith in what you accomplished on the cross of Cal- on Calvary, we could be born into your family. We could be saved from the hell we deserve to a heaven that we do not just on the basis of what you've done and our acceptance of that, not on the basis of anything that we could do for you. Pray that there's, we could communicate that message effectively to the young people who come to Vacation Bible School, that while it would be an opportunity to help the kids that already have put their faith in you grow in their faith, but that it would also be an opportunity to introduce some young people that don't normally come out to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the free gift that is offered to them for them to either accept or reject. Pray that they would accept it. Pray that many young people would get saved. Thank you even for my wife and the 20 years of marriage that we've had together. Uh, Pray that by your grace we would have 20 more that would lift you up and and put you front and center in our lives and put the spotlight and focus on you. Uh, Thank you for the book of Deuteronomy that we have been studying here. Pray that you give me wisdom as I speak tonight so that what is said would be accurate and clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Also, there is a young people's gathering tonight too, I believe, in the back. So um, I just only see Gabe here, but Gabe, you're welcome to stay. We're not kicking you out, but you're all... <laughs> vote. Let's get a vote. Uh, who who, who wants... No. <laughs> we won't do that to you, Gabe. We all love you. We're all glad that you're here. All right. One thing I do need, though, is... Uh, I need my Bible. Well, good news for those of you who like to stick with the uh, the King James Version. We're going to be doing King James Version tonight because that's what's up here. Oh, look at this. You see what I mean? Thank you, dear. I love you, honey. All right. Well, the title of tonight's sermon is Choose Life. Choose Life. And that was meant to be the title of our sermon the last time we ended up being in Deuteronomy. But because I tried to cover two chapters, we only got through chapter 29. And the title of that message ended up being changed in hindsight after the fact to remember the faithfulness of your God or the faithfulness of your God. Something like that. Check online. The guys in the tape room did a great job of coming up with an alternate title because I said there's no way we can separate chapter 30 from the title Choose Life and put an exclamation point behind that. If I wasn't feeling like I was on the verge of losing my voice, I might shout that out to you. That is ultimately the underlying message of the Bible. It's not the only one, but a predominant message of the Bible is Choose Life. This is, this is a choice that has to be made. God doesn't make this choice for you. And you think about choose life. I said in our introduction a few weeks back when we were last in Deuteronomy that life is full of life or death decisions as it relates to your physical well-being. And I mentioned that there are more of them, of them being life or death decisions than you even realize or give any thought. And we talked about a few examples of that. Some of them we talked about was 
all of the life and death decisions that are innate to simply driving a vehicle. And if you pull out in front of somebody or you don't see somebody, the danger that would be there. Or when you're talking about other things that we take for granted, like walking downstairs, there's a lot of life and death decisions there. If you were to lose your concentration or not grab the handrail, people very often are faced with that outcome where people simply die walking down stairs because they're not as attentive as they should be. Or other life and death decisions like whether or not you're going to treat or, or look at or view swimming as being dangerous. Those that are not taking the proper precautions when they're in a boat. Those that are not taking the proper precautions when they try to swim in water that's too cold. There's many different ways that throughout your day you are in effect making life or death decisions. And you take it for granted. You don't even really think about it. But on the spiritual plane, we mentioned that there's life and death decisions that are being made throughout every day too. You either include God in your life and thus experience the life that he offers really living or you exclude him from your life or whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're thinking. You exclude him and you're experiencing in that moment whether you know it or not, you're experiencing the practical equivalent of spiritual death because you're going through life apart from him and we'll see as we're reminded of this principle tonight that in union with him, in his presence, is the only place where life can be found. So when you choose to do life or live life or whatever the modern way of saying that might be, apart from him, you're choosing death. You're choosing spiritual separation from the one that can give life meaning. And so that is the underlying principle that Moses is seeking to bring out here when he says, choose life. And we'll see him, that phrase be used specifically in chapter 30 here, but that choose life we brought up from the very first chapter or the introduction to the book of Deuteronomy, that choose life, it's been the underlying theme of the book. And Moses has, throughout this book of remembrance or this book of reminders, Moses has been exhorting the nation to walk by faith, to operate independence, and to follow God's direction for their lives. He's been saying to them, choose life. Now, he's going to, where we get the phrase from is going to come from this chapter. He hasn't been using that specific phrase over and over, but he's been communicating that idea over and over, that if you have a new day in front of you, If you have God's direction available to you, you either heed it and choose to follow him and include him and walk by faith or you choose death and you choose the alternative which is to reject him and to thus not experience life the way he intended and effectively to be a dead man walking in the sense that you're spiritually in that moment living a life that's separated from him which is the equivalent in the Bible always of this concept of death separation from the one who gives life, the one and only source of life. So he's been repeatedly equating doing so with, a, with being a life and death decision, choosing to live life with God, include him in life, heed his direction for your life. He's been consistently equating that to life, living life or a life and death decision. He's consistently equated not doing that to impacting 
your physical life and your spiritual life because in the context of the book of Deuteronomy, we've been seeing that it's in the context of a conditional covenant and thus this decision is life and death as it relates to both your physical well-being and also it's life and death as it relates to the nation or the individuals within the nation's spiritual well-being also. So that's been the theme of the book. It's interesting that in the 30th chapter now, we're finally going to see that phrase that sort of becomes or has become or we've held up as the theme of the book of Deuteronomy. So if you haven't already, turn to the 30th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy and we'll, by God's grace, get through it here tonight. Now, as far as giving us some context or building up to chapter 30, remember chapter 29 we were looking at this idea that the covenant is going to be reviewed or renewed in a sense. It was a book of remembrance, hence the title that that ended up being added to the message which was the faithfulness or yeah, the faithfulness of your God. Something like that. So since the book is referred to a book of, as a book of remembrance, it stands to reason that there would be this continuous repetition. Spiritual truths, we brought out the concept that those truths in the Word of God are repeated over and over and over again, just like these specific details or the specific attributes or aspects of this Mosaic covenant, this conditional covenant between the nation and God were repeated over and over and over again. The positive side of trusting God, the negative side of refusing to trust him or rejecting him. And so that was true of the Mosaic covenant, that was true of the physical conditional aspects that were tied to the Mosaic covenant, but that we've been bringing out and we did especially in chapter 29 there is remember the faithfulness of your God, see that these spiritual truths that God has revealed to us have to be repeated over and over again so that we can learn them, so that we can be reminded of them, so that we cannot be distracted by the thinking and the attitudes and the beliefs and the priorities and the behaviors of the world around us. And the Bible thus takes this approach that is very repetitive. And so we saw in verses 1 through 9 that Moses effectively instructed the people to be convinced to trust God by reflecting on his past faithfulness. Then we looked at verses 10 through 19 and we saw that this covenant agreement it affected Everybody, everybody on an individual level had to make this choice in order for the choice to be effective on a national level. And we saw we saw this fascinating verse in verse 19 that no individual could opt out of God's plan or God's directives and expect to thrive physically or spiritually. We saw this phrase that there would be those that over time would grow to believe that apart from God they could still thrive or experience the full measure of joy that, was, that they wanted or desired in life. And they would have an attitude that would say, in effect, you can read in verse 19 here, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. To have that mentality that although God is giving very specific instruction and direction for my well-being, he's laying it out very clearly. He's repeating it over and over and over again. All seek their own and not the things of faith. All, all have gone astray. 
Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And that there would be those that would have that mindset and Moses is warning against it. And we talked about how by remembering God's faithfulness in our own lives, hopefully we can not become another example of that where we would hear about God's truth. We would learn those principles. We would see God's direction. We would hear about his plan, his purpose, and his will for our life by studying his word that was revealed to us and that we would adopt, despite knowing all of that, we would adopt this mindset that says, I can have peace, I can experience joy my own way apart from God and apart from involving him in my life. So then we saw at the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 29, we saw the consequences of rejecting God. And we talked about some applications to even our own lives, the spiritual consequences of going through life apart from a right vertical relationship with him, apart from enjoying him, apart from including him. And we talked about how in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, there was very real physical repercussions associated with the conditional nature of the Mosaic Covenant covenant. So then as we come into chapter 30, you kind of had seen at the end of chapter 29 this negative aspect of things. This idea of what if you turn from God? What will the consequences be if you reject him? What will the consequences be if you're operating apart from a walk of faith or not having a life of faith? So then as we come into chapter 30 here, the first section of it is a section of restoration. It's a section of what are the positive though ramifications of recognizing your failure and turning back to God. So I'd call these first 10 verses, God is always waiting for your return or change of mind. So let's take a look at these first 10 verses and read them together. Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, and again that was the negative aspects, you could refer to it as the curse aspects or the the negative aspects of not trusting God, heeding his direction for your lives, operating apart from him, not operating in faith and dependence on him. So when it comes to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. Now verse 2, and this would eventually happen. And you return to the Lord, your God, and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. Now when that happens, what will be the byproduct of that? You and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. It's going to involve everyone again. It's not going to be limited to any one person because, again, the focus here is on a national level. Now, our focus is certainly on a corporate church level, on a even a national level here within this country. Righteousness exalts a nation. But the focus, generally speaking, is always starts with an individual's response to God on a personal level. He's a personal God. The focus is not on God being a corporate God, though he is. The focus is not on God being a national God, though, though he can be. The focus is always in the word of God, first and foremost, on God being a personal God. So then verse 3, that the Lord your God, this is what will happen when that occurs on an individual level that speaks to the spiritual health of a whole nation. When that happens, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. And he'll have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. 
he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your descendants. Remember that we touched on that at length earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, that God is after heart changes. That yes, under the under the law, there were external, symbolic representations of an internal response of faith to a loving God. That those responses were to be based on a love response to having seen his care and compassion and grace and mercy and love for them on an individual level. God is after a changed heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now for what outcome? That you may live. Choose life. This is a life and death decision. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. So instead of you suffering the consequences of your rejection of God, the, those others that have still rejected God, they'll still be suffering the consequences of that, but not you. You'll be experiencing God's blessing. Again, we have to remember the specific context here of the conditional nature of the Mosaic Covenant, but we'll see that there's some universal or transdispensational principles here. Verse 8, And you will again obey the voice of the Lord. That always follows loving the Lord. Remember that we brought that out over and over so far in this book. I hope you have, will never forget that, that God isn't first seeking for obedience so that obedience then can create love. He's seeking for a love response that then would trust God enough, see that God is all wise and that God is gracious and loving and kind-hearted and that he's good all of the time and that in seeing God's goodness then and responding to that in love, then it would lead to following God's instructions or direction for your life. Verse 9, the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers if, here's the conditional nature of the Mosaic Covenant, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in the book of the law and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We'll unpack some of this a little bit more here. See, this is a continuation of the foreshadowing that started in chapter 29, verse 28. If you look at 29, 28, God is talking about the negative consequences of having turned away from him. And it's sort of summarized here. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and wrath and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is to this day. So there's strong foreshadowing. Anyone who knows the story of the nation of Israel and what comes in the future, you know that ultimately it leads to captivity and bondage and being exiled from the land of rest that God had provided for his people. So many spiritual applications there in the sense that anytime you're trying to live life apart from God, you're not going to be experiencing his rest. You're not going to be able to be experiencing the abundant life. You're not going to, apart from being in his presence, if his presence is where fullness of joy is found and you're living life somewhere else beside his presence, then you can't expect to be experiencing his joy. If I'll keep him in peace whose mind has stayed on me, how are you going to experience God's peace while you're seeking to live life apart from him and your mind is not stayed on him? 
Some of this is just basic math. It's one leads to another. God makes it very clear. He doesn't stutter when he speaks. He doesn't hide it from us. He reveals it to us with the idea that through his grace and through the power of his spirit, we could appropriate by faith a life that is lived in close union with him. And with me on your side, there's nothing that you cannot do. With God, all things are possible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For when I am weak, that I'm strong because I'm operating in dependence on you and God is finally able to work in and through me as just a channel and a vessel and an instrument for him to accomplish his greater purposes in my life and in the lives of those that he's brought me into proximity with. So Moses in 29, he's, and, and now here in 30, he's both anticipating this time when the nation is going to fall into disobedience. Now how in the world would Moses already be anticipating that? because he's already experienced it over and over again in this 40 years of leading the nation from the time he was 40 to the time he was, uh, no, it's actually longer than that. It's like 80 years. So he lives to be 120 years. He's close to his death here. He spent a bunch of time with a rebellious and stiff-necked people of which he was one, of which is why he himself is telling them this on the other side of the Jordan. Why he's giving this advice, yet he's not going into the land of rest. Because he wasn't immune to that either. But the point is, he could foreshadow this. He could look at or anticipate this because he had seen it. He had seen it repeated more than one time as he had been living life with himself. He'd seen it in himself and he'd been living life with others. So it didn't take a great stretch of the imagination for him to anticipate, especially all scriptures written through the direct inspiration, every word of God. And so God knew, could anticipate that they would fall into disobedience. Now what was the consequence of that going to be from verse 28? They would experience exile. So he already knew that that would happen, that that was likely to happen. And so he had already spoke to that as a part of the consequence or the the curse of the covenant in turning from God. And so apostasy then would inevitably, would be inevitable and the consequences that would follow would be that the nation would be uprooted from their land. And we saw that as we already looked at it. So we have the the uprooting and the exile already being predicted as we looked at the end of chapter 29. Now note that the primary physical consequences parallel the spiritual consequence. And we brought that out. I just wanted to remind you of that from chapter 29. Yes, the, the spiritual conse- the, the physical consequence was uprooting and exile. From where? Uprooting and exile from the land that was symbolic of and represented God's rest. So we brought out this principle. You can't reside in, God would be saying this, imagine he's saying this, he's saying people of faith, men and women of faith, you can't reside in my place of rest and provision while at the same time you reject me. It's incompatible. It can't work that way. It's only by living life in my rest, in the shelter of my arm, with my arm wrapped around you in close proximity to me that you can experience the benefits of that rest and peace. But you can't experience it apart from that. And so that physical principle was true that they would be ejected and exiled and removed from the land of rest. But of course, that was true on a spiritual level too. 
And we saw some direct application there even to our own life. So now here as we pick up chapter 30, the solution to this foreshadowed, inevitable in some ways, disobedience, the solution is placed front and center. So the solution is somewhat similar. We, t- we, we titled this whole section that, God is waiting for you to change your mind. So remember, God is in the restoration business. Reconcil- reconciling what was estranged from him is the primary storyline of the Bible. So this is a fascinating first half of this chapter, even though the focus of our title and the focus of our, our message is really going to be on the second ten verses. Some of you are like, yeah, right, that'll be next, next Wednesday. But this reconciliation, this restoration, that's always what God is in the business of. That's what the whole book is about. People, because of their choice to believe a lie instead of God's truth, ended up being estranged and alienated from God on the basis or because of the impact of sin, the barrier that sin brought into the equation, the separation that came with that sinfulness. And the whole story of the Bible is a story of how God in his love sought to resolve that problem to rescue those that were helpless and hopeless. It's a story of redemption, to buy back or purchase out from under this bondage that we were in. And so it stands to reason that on the heels of laying out the negative ramifications of turning from God, that now chapter 30 is going to be here. This whole section was about restoration. What will happen if you turn back to me. So now where can we see that? You're saying, I didn't hear that as we read this. Well, here's where you see that. In, in verse 2, it says, what is the solution? The solution to the separation or being ejected from the place of rest is to turn back to the Lord your God. It says to return to the Lord your God. Now we'll see at the end of verse 10, same thing is stated. If you obey the voice of the Lord, but that's only going to happen if and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God is waiting for your return. God is waiting for you to turn back. That involves changing your mind. That that involves having a change of heart, a change of thinking. Now note, if you're going to turn back to the Lord, it involves turning away from something else that you had been attracted to, that you had been captivated by, that you had been distracted by. Now think about your own life. Are there times where we turn our gaze or orient our gaze away from the author and finisher of our faith? Yes. When we do that, do we operate in a vacuum of some time, of some kind where we turn away from him but we don't turn to anything? No. We turn away from him and we turn to something else. Oftentimes it's a focus on self because that's what's driving the ship in many instances. Sometimes it's a focus on others. Sometimes it's a focus on the world around us. Sometimes it's a focus on circumstances. Sometimes it's being distracted by physical things. Sometimes it's being distracted by 
feelings, emotions. None of those things are necessarily wrong. But if it's taking our gaze away from God in a way that breaks our fellowship with him so that we're not in that moment anymore walking in dependence on him, walking with our focus on him, walking in intimate fellowship with him, now it's a real problem. But it's because we turned our gaze to something else. So then, hence, we have one of our favorite songs here in this church. I'm assuming other churches as well, but turn your eyes upon Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means you're not presently focused and fixated and looking at him. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And what will that mean? That you're going to turn from something else. And the things of earth now grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that is what the, the principle here, I mean, sometimes people struggle. I'm not, I'm not immune from it. To find application to their lives as they study the narrative of the Bible, the story that builds up to the climax of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that builds up to the climax of God's institution of the the church and the local church, this mystery that was hidden as a valley in the Old Testament, Uh, the direct truths that are written specifically to you living in the age of grace, living in the church age. And they don't see that the whole thing, though, from the very first word all the way to there is a build-up, though, that reinforces the same types of principles all the way through, though not all of it was written directly about you or to you. But it was all written for your benefit. And you see these truths here that this restoration comes in the lives of the nation of Israel from turning back to the Lord. Just like restoration in your life comes from turning back to the Lord. Now compare what they would be turning from. If you look at chapter 29, verse 19, chapter 29, verse 19 says the phrase, following the desires of my own stubborn heart. And in our New King James, it says, following the dictates of my heart. But I believe that's NIV there that says, instead of trusting the Lord, when you turn from him, you're in fact following the desires of my own stubborn heart. And isn't that... It's me against me, friends. Isn't that the ultimate issue that every Christian is facing? The battle within? The battle against self? Am I going to trust self? Am I going to lean on my own understanding? Or am I going to trust the Lord? And I'm going to walk by means of His Spirit in His direction. What He says is true instead of what I think is true or I feel is true or I'm told is true by a less reliable source. So it's a changed mind, though, that precipitates this all. And that isn't necessarily overly clear here in the passage, but you have to work for it to find, to find that and pull that out. It's about turning, returning to the Lord and turning back to the Lord your God. Now, Moses is going to foretell what God's response to their changed hearts is going to be in verses 3 through 10. So those first three verses kind of lay, lay out the, the generality. And then... sorry, 1 and 2, and then 3 through 10 really talk about what will God's response be to their changed attitude, changed thinking, changed heart, changed focus. And so you're going to have relational restoration always be the primary focus, even though in our context here, physical restoration accompanies it because of the context of the covenantal structure that is here. 
But God is always after restored relationship with him. That is his primary focus. In verses 3 through 10, you see that what will come with that, though, is a physical restoration of those that were exiled to the land of rest, the land of promise. So the Old Testament details various temporary physical restoration in the history that follows. It's going to detail many examples of the nation turning from the Lord, experiencing consequences, physical consequences, but of course, again, the focus, spiritual consequences associated with turning from God. And then as you were to read the rest of the the story of the nation that will follow, you would see that there's many different places you could point to where when they turn back to God, God had this restoration in a physical sense of them to the place of rest. Now, that was in a physical sense, prosperity, influence in the world around them, uh, power, borders, boundaries, cities, crop success, animal success, people success, growing in numbers. Yes, there's the physical side of that. And there's, there's nu- numerous examples of that, including the ultimate exile where Judah is taken to Babylon. And eventually, with Nehemiah and Ezra, you have the return from exile to the land. There's a picture of it. Now, it wasn't complete. They didn't have complete autonomy. That's going to have to wait to one day in the future where God will honor that promise. And they will have the land of rest. They will live in faith in the land of rest. But there's a lot of talk here or foreshadowing of that in verses 3 through 10 of how God will do that. So complete physical restoration is, is pointed to with some of these instances of partial or temporal restoration, but it's ultimately guaranteed eventually because of the unconditional nature of God's promise to Abraham. So while the Mosaic Covenant is conditional, God's promise to Abraham that was repeated several times to others, some call it, you know, would refer to it being renewed, but the original promise to to Abraham, the, the secondary promise that added to that of a land, the Palestinian covenant, some refer to it as, but the land, the seed, the, the blessing, the, this promise is unconditional. And so God will keep his promise. Uh, the descendants of Abraham will exist in faith in the land uh, during the millennial kingdom. We know that that will be, that that will be true. Now there's maybe more aspects to it that we could bring out, but that's not our purpose here tonight. But this part here, 3 through 10, it's intended to provide a sense of hope, even in the face of the negative consequences of rejection that were just laid out at the end of chapter 29. Now, how is the promised restoration going to be appropriated? Well, it's going to be appropriated by faith. What is the visible manifestation of that internal faith? turning to the Lord. And that's how the section ends in verse 10. The, it's, a tr- it's a response of faith that's the ultimate issue. It's manifested and seen by turning to the Lord in an observable way that is discussed there in verse 10. So when you're thinking about our own lives, restoration is God's primary focus when you stray too. It was his focus when they would stray because they were men and women of faith, just like you're existing as a man or woman of faith. But it's, possi- it's impossible for God to restore without you changing your thinking, without you returning to him, without you agreeing with God or acknowledging that God is right and that you were incorrect or wrong in your thinking. 
So that's why we have even the very famous verse in 1 John about if we would confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Confess we've taught, we've brought out. It means to acknowledge where we've gone astray. That the actual word means to agree with God. Until you're willing to change your mind, which you won't do unless you see that you've been living or operating in error, you can't acknowledge or agree with God. You can't be on the same page. You can't be saying the same thing as him while at the same time you're operating in rebellion and rejection of him. The other thing to think about in our own lives is the blessing of rightly relating to the Lord. It's a blessing to be able to be in a right relationship with God. It's a blessing to be able to enjoy intimate fellowship with him. And it's always available. You think about having a bank account with limitless riches. The bank account is always available and accessible. Living life with God is that treasure. It is that thing of value. The, the account can't be run dry. You can access it any time. But will you? It's available, but will you? Will you turn back to the Lord in your thinking when your thinking goes astray so that you're withdrawing from that account? Each day you're withdrawing from that account. His mercies are being renewed every day. Are you going to withdraw from that account and enjoy that value, that treasure of living life with him? Well, that's what God wanted for the nation. He wanted that to be their response when they saw that they had turned from him, when they had suffered the consequences of doing that physically and spiritually. That's what he wanted for them. Now, the life or death decisions. Verses 11 through 20. It's not, it's not complicated. Let's look at verses 1 through 13, or 11 through 13. That's what Moses is saying here. This isn't complicated. This choice is so clear. It's not complicated. Verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it or do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? It's right in front of you is what he's saying. That's very poetic language to try to say this isn't something hidden. It's something, something far off. It's not mysterious. It's not hard for you to get a hold of it. The NIV actually says it's not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not far away. There's no need of an interpreter. There's no need for an intermediary. You, in verses 12 and 13, you can understand this. It's simple. There's a life and death decision in front of you, but you must personally decide. Let's read verse 14. But the word is very near to you. You see how it's individual and personal? In your mouth, individual and personal. In your heart, individual and personal. That you may do it, individual and personal. This is other people. This isn't about whether or not your pastor will be reconciled to God or be enjoying intimate fellowship with God or he'll learn from his mistakes or he'll do this, that, or the other thing. It's about will you. It's available for you every day to choose life and to do that by choosing to withdraw from the bank account of enjoying intimate relational fellowship with the God of the universe. Will you? Will you choose that or will you not? You have to decide it. You see that language there of that personal decision, but the word is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Your life is yours to do with as you choose. 
You choose to live life connected to him or you don't. But you, not me, you have to live with the ramifications of your choices. I have to live with the ramifications of my own choices. Are you going to choose to live life with him or not? It's a life or death decision. And so then you see that personal nature of this in Deuteronomy 5, if you're thinking about a cross-reference. He said in chapter 5, he told them, we're not worried about the other generation. We're worried about you. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. It's not about the past generation. It's not about your mate or your spouse or the person sitting in the row next to you or the person sitting across the auditorium for you. It's about you. Are you going to make this very simple decision on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis? Am I going to live or am I going to die? On a spiritual plane, of course, is our focus, though we'll get into a little bit more there. See, the, the decision is a life-and-death decision. It's such a vivid illustration. He uses that phrase, the choice is set before you. You must pick one. And that's verse 15. Let's read it. See, I have set before you. It's like I put it on a table right in front of you. I have set before you today life and good or death and evil. Look at that contrast. Again, Bible's a book of contrast. You have on one side of the contrast, life and good. On the other side of the contrast, death and evil. Shouldn't this be a simple decision? That's what Moses is getting at. This isn't complicated. Shouldn't this be simple? And then verse 16, he's going to say, loving God results in walking in his ways and ultimately it produces blessing in your life. Let's look at verse 16. In that, so here's more explanation of verse 15. It's, it's life and good and death and evil in that I command you today to love the Lord your God. What flows from that? To walk in his ways. What flows from walking Living life, enjoying life, having a manner of living is the word walk means a manner of living. Walking in his ways, what comes after that? Keeping his commandments, his statutes and judgment. You see, obedience, end of the line again. That you may, what will the outcome be if you choose that? That you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. You cannot change this order when it comes to spiritual success. The foundation for obedience is love and the focus is relational. It's about responding relationally to your God. So then the question is, is are you presently enjoying the Lord? Are you responding to the Lord? Are you loving the Lord such that you're seeing his goodness and as you respond to your goodness, you're seeing his wisdom? You see that he knows better than you do such that then you're seeing that you want to let him lead and direct in your life such that your life now is in compliance with his plan, purpose, and will for your life. That's the order. It's not, it's not complicated. Now, we, we make it complicated, but it's not. Now, what's the alternative? The alternative is not presently loving the Lord that's a relational issue, again. Thus not walking in his ways and thus not presently enjoying his blessings. So then we see that in verse 17. The focus is turning away and worshiping other gods. That's the alternative 
to what he's laying out as the life choice. Now we're going to have the death choice. But if your heart turns away, may mean you're turning to something else. We're going to see that here in a second. That you do not hear and are drawn away, meaning there is enticement in sin. There's an attraction or an attack, the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's an enticement side to that. So you're drawn away. Now what's the outcome of that though? You turn to something. You worship other gods and what is the ultimate result? You're serving them. You can only serve one. You're either serving the Lord or you're serving the opposition. That's the alternative. Now Moses is warning against this outcome. Let's look at verse 18, what the warning is. I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which... you which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. You shall surely perish if we're making this directly, of course, context here, Mosaic covenant, conditional covenant. There's a physical aspect to this too. Our application, there's a spiritual truth here. You will not thrive. It will not be well with you. You will not prosper. Your days will not be full They will not be maximized. They will not be something that you want to reflect back on in light of eternity. So we have both physical and spiritual prosperity at stake here in our our specific context. But God's focus in your life is primarily your spiritual well-being. I hope you see that. Romans 8, 6 jumped out at me as I was thinking about this life and death decision, it says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. A transdispensational principle, friends. This is, this is true for all time, for all ages, always has been and always will be true. That in your presence is where there's fullness of joy. I am living the abundant life when I'm living it in in faith, when I'm living it in relational closeness and proximity to you, when I'm living it in rest, trusting and relying and depending on you to do and work and, and undertake in my life in ways that I never could on my own. The question is, will you do that or will you not? But the warning is you will surely perish that we saw there in verse 18. To be carnally minded is death. Now what is God's desire for you? Now this was Moses' desire for the people too. It was God's desire for those people, uh, for the nation of Israel. Read 19. I call on heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have here, we have the language, set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. That you both, that both you and your descendants may live. Choose life. There you have it as clearly as any place that you're going to find in this book and perhaps the Bible as a whole. It's laid out plainly in front of you. The question is, which will you choose? Now we see in verse 20, you can love the Lord, obey the Lord, and cling to the Lord. That's, that's what it means to choose life. I love that some people, when they see choose life, they they think that the response is or that what that saying is, buckle down and really pump this out in your flesh. Really try really hard. Really root out through your own strength. Root out all the evil in your life. You know, David, 
he, he says, you know what? Uh, I want to have you give me victory over the evil that's known to me. But David is so thoughtful and he has a sense of wisdom when he says, reveal to me if there is any wickedness within me. You see the, how profound that is? That he, he sees that it's not just about him recognizing places that God wants to make changes, but that God, in fact, is going to have to reveal to him the things he doesn't even realize about himself. That's why this operation could never be successful when it's team self taking the lead. Because team self doesn't even have the information it would need to make the appropriate changes. Team self doesn't even know the critical details that would be necessary for self-reformation. The reformation is going to have to happen by God making changes in us through the power of his spirit working in us as he reveals to us areas in our lives that he wants to make changes. This is not the self-reformation life. This is the get out of God's way, be a yielded instrument to him so that he can make the changes in our lives. So let's read verse 28, that you may love the Lord your God. What comes after that again? That you may obey his voice. What comes after that? That you may cling to him. Now catch this. For he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. His love for you is the first part of it. It's not stated there, but you're never going to love him until you first see his love for you. You're going to love the Lord. The foundation for all matters of faith is always love. It's always God's love first. God's love moved first. We can then respond to God's love We love him because he first loved us. As we respond to his love and his goodness, we see his character, we see his wisdom, that he's the only wise God. We see his righteousness, we see his faithfulness. We see that he is sovereign, and as we learn more about his character, we learn to trust him more. As we trust him more, we operate in dependence. As we depend on him, our lives start to become more and more a reflection of him, and in the case of the church-age Christian, a reflection of his dear son that we're conformed into the image of him, it's less and less me, and it's more and more him. Now, why should I? Why should I do that? I love how it's answered here in verse 20. Why should I choose life? Why should I choose this relational response to a life of intimacy and fellowship with God? Because he is your life Take a pen, I mean, for those of you who think it's sacrilegious, make an exception here. He is your life. It's right there. Choose life because he is the only source of life. There is no life apart from him. Doesn't that sound an awful lot lot like Colossians 3, 3 and 4? For you died. Now what does it go on to say after that though? This is positional truth. You died and... Your life is hidden with Christ in God. There is no life apart from him. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? Most of you know it. I have been crucified with Christ, death of self. This is positional truth. I'm now identified with his death, the moment of my faith in his finished 
death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf. I'm now identified with his death. You died. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. There isn't life for me to live apart from him. That's been put to death. But Christ lives in me. Christ is my life. And here in the context of Jehovah, just God more generally here, he is your life. So the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Wow. What a chapter. The most critical aspect of any life of faith is illustrated as clearly here as anywhere in the Bible. Choose life But what does choosing life mean? It means choosing him. Summarize the whole hour here. Choose life. How do I do that? I choose him. I don't exclude him. I don't choose myself. I choose him. Powerful truth. The decision, this decision to accept and include is contrasted with the alternative decision, which is if you're not choosing life, what are you choosing? Death, it's a life and death decision. It's been set out clearly in front of you. So rejecting and excluding is the opposite of accepting and including. But it's placed directly in front of you. So now we're talking about a positive volitional response. What is your choice going to be? You must choose this. We're talking about God through Moses saying, choose life and putting an exclamation point after it. Repeatedly choose life when we're talking not about justification, but when we're talking about Christian living. Repeatedly, every moment of every day, this decision remains in front of you. Imagine that you have some type of a, some type of a shelf strapped to your chest and in front of it is life and death and it's there throughout every day, throughout every moment of every day. Repeatedly choose life. And may that consistently be your decision and mine. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing reminder that life is available and it's only to be found in your presence. That if we want to experience life, we have to choose you. That it's you that actually works in us to both to will and to do of your good pleasure. It's true that you make this even the choice even possible in a sense of on a practical level. We have, you don't force it on us though. You put it in front of us and you say, it's here for the taking. You can do this. There's nothing stopping you from do this, doing this. Will you though? Will you do this? Choose you this day whom you will serve. Either choose the Lord or reject him. But there's consequences associated with that. Pray that just as a family of faith here that you would consistently work in our hearts and our minds so that we would want to choose you instead of all the alternatives. Pray that that's what we could be known for. Pray that that's the truth that we could pass along to the next generation. Pray that that's the truth or the light that could be shown into the darkness around us and the community around us, that we could be a beacon of light that would illuminate that darkness with your truth and with your life and with your light. Pray that that would be all of our heart's desire. Pray for VBS here coming up on Monday. Pray for the senior high camp. Pray for the work project at the camp. Pray that you'd undertake with all those details too. In Jesus' name, amen.